Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. I'm your host, Talia Murdoch, and would like to begin by acknowledging that we are fortunate to be able to gather on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, where this podcast is recorded. Today, I'm going to be talking about reproductive rights, something that has been a very hot topic since the US Supreme Court became more conservative. I won't be getting so much into the politics of this issue, but as always, we'll be discussing what reproductive rights actually are and why it is critical to protect them. What does it mean when you take away a person's rights over their own body? And do reproductive rights go beyond just abortion? Yes, abortion will come up, so if this is something that makes you feel uncomfortable, you may want to skip this episode, but I encourage everyone to stick around here as this issue impacts far more than just US citizens. That is something I should mention as well. This discussion is based on current events in the US and on US foreign aid to other undeveloped or underdeveloped countries. I absolutely understand that the situation for many people living in other less fortunate parts of the world is more dire and often life-threatening. I don't in any way want to undermine the struggles of women around the world because this conversation is a big one with many more players than the US alone. They just happen to be the folks featured heavily in the media I am exposed to here in Canada at this time, so that is why I've chosen to take this approach in this episode. So let's begin. First up, what even are reproductive rights? According to the World Health Organization, reproductive rights rest on the recognition of the basic right of all couples and individuals to decide freely and responsibly the number, spacing, and timing of their children, and to have the information and means to do so, and the right to attain the highest standard of sexual and reproductive health. They also include the right of all to make decisions concerning reproduction free of discrimination, coercion, and violence. More specifically, reproductive rights can include everything from access to legal safe abortions, to paid family leave, access to safe, affordable contraception, sexual health services, and more. Reproductive rights are essential to gender equality. Having control over your own body and being able to make decisions about when you do or don't have children is critical to enabling people to participate in their community, have a job, create, earn a living, own property, just be a citizen without discrimination. When reproductive rights do not exist, this fundamental existence is diminished or disappears. Before we get into this conversation, I also want to emphasize that in 1978, the United Nations adopted the World Health Organization definition of health as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of infirmity, being physical or mental weaknesses, as a fundamental human right. So this issue is broad and has wide-reaching impacts, especially when this right is violated. Getting into some details now, I want to start this conversation with the importance of paid parental leave. Paid parental leave is when an employee is granted time off from work for a given amount of time with pay to care for a new child, whether birthed, adopted or fostered. The position that was held by the parent is secured so they can return as a working employee as per their agreement. The US currently has no mandatory paid parental leave legislated by government, whereas many other countries do, such as Australia, New Zealand, Estonia and Denmark, to name a few. 
The level at which parental leave is mandated varies, and I'll talk about this in a moment. First, why would a government want to make it a legal requirement for employers to provide all employees of any gender with equal paid parental leave? Well, from a very human perspective, an infant's physical and emotional attachment to their parents is critical to brain development. Those early bonding months are important for parents and children. Plus, having a child, whether through adoption, fostering or giving birth, can be a high-pressure time for everyone involved, from recovery to just getting into a rhythm for this new life. There is a lot of science backing this these days, so if you are interested in learning more, you'll be able to find an abundance of information and studies on your government's health department website. I personally know quite a few women I have worked with in the past who would extend their parental leave because they felt they needed more time with their child, or straight up decided to take a year off. Of course, everyone is entitled to make their own decisions about the kind of leave they want to take when it comes to having a child, but an employer should support any parent, male, female, or non-binary, to take paid leave and know that their job is still secure. Now, from an economic perspective, paid parental leave is good for everyone, the employee, the employer, and society at large. For starters, it helps women stay in the workforce for longer and also earn higher wages. We know for a fact that the lack of paid parental leave is a key contributor to the gender pay gap. This is particularly important as in most developed countries, the majority of households are led by working couples, and one in four children in the US are being raised by single mothers. So parents need to be supported by their employers. In 2002, the state of California implemented the US's first ever paid family leave program. This program legislated employers to provide at least six weeks of partial wage replacement for workers who go on leave to bond with a new biological, adopted or foster child. This included any parent and did not discriminate against gender. This program also updates regularly to try and incentivize use by employees. For example, in 2017, the program provided 55% of earnings, paying up to $987 per week. Now, this rate was found to be too low for those on lower incomes, so in 2018, it was increased to 60% for most workers, and for those who earn at or near minimum wage, they get paid 70% of their usual weekly wages. And this was done because the original amount was not nearly enough to survive on, especially when there is a new child in the home. So it is great that the program is dynamic and responsive to actual usage. Even though six weeks isn't really enough. Now, when it comes to the impact that this program had on businesses, it really breaks down the myth pushed by industry and lobbyists that paid parental leave will crush productivity and cost too much. For starters, this program and many others like it are funded by inflation index payroll tax, so the employer is not paying for the leave directly. Instead, employers chip in a small percentage in their taxes every year, most likely less than $10, that goes into a fund that employers can claim against when someone uses the leave, so it's like insurance in a way. Secondly, the impacts on productivity, something we're just so obsessed with, were overwhelmingly not noticeable or positive. 
For example, 89% of businesses with less than 50 employees reported no noticeable effect or a positive effect on productivity, with 99% reporting the same on morale. When it comes to profitability and performance, 91% of these businesses reported no noticeable effect or a positive effect from the program. For larger companies, so those with 100 or more employees, 71% reported no noticeable or a positive effect on productivity, and 91% on morale. On average, across all company sizes, 93% reported a positive or net impact on turnover as well, meaning that people are staying in the same job for longer, safely. In another assessment of this program, it was also found that median weeks of breastfeeding doubled from 5 weeks to 11 weeks in high-paying jobs and 5 weeks to 9 weeks in low-paying jobs, which while still inequitable, this is a fantastic achievement for early childhood brain development and newborn parent bonding. Use of the program also saw lower paid workers more likely to return to the same employer because of the built-in job security, something not experienced elsewhere. And from 2004 to 2010, the amount of men using the program increased from 17 to 26% as ideas about parenting responsibilities begin to change, supported by things like mandated paid parental leave for any gender. So given the fact that the negative impacts on business are almost non-existent and that new parents are given job security and income to support themselves and their child, I'm confident in saying that paid parental leave is good for everyone. It also makes me think about the fact that in countries where paid parental leave is not legislated, and even in those that are, Businesses fight against it because productivity and profits are more valuable than the well-being of their employees, which I just cannot get on board with. Do we really need to be producing everything we possibly can at the lowest possible cost at the expense of a good quality of life? Particularly in a time where we are working more hours and producing more than we ever have in history? It is absolutely not necessary because this economy has been deliberately created to keep you working to the benefit of others and detriment to yourself. So just consider that as the paid parental leave debate continues. So now that we have talked a bit about having a child and the importance of paid parental leave as a goal of reproductive rights, I want to discuss the rights of those who don't want to have a child. Having a child and raising another human is a huge responsibility. It not only puts financial strain on parents, but also physical and mental strains that, yes, while a natural part of life, aren't for everyone. Not everyone wants to have a child, and even some people who do want to need to make that decision at a time in their life that works for them to reduce the financial, mental and physical expectations of raising a family and make sure that a baby and child is in a safe, comfortable environment. The reasons people don't want to have children also vary so much that it is more than unfair to restrict sexual health funding and prevent people from making choices. Maybe it doesn't suit someone's lifestyle. Maybe they can't afford a child. Maybe they want to prevent passing on a hereditary disease. Who knows? It is a very personal decision. So this brings me to the right to access to safe, affordable sexual health including but not limited to access to contraception and abortion.
So first, let's consider contraception. It comes in many forms. Condoms, the pill, an implant, being probably the three most common, each having their pros and cons, but each, especially a pill or implant, giving women autonomy over their bodies and their reproductive choices. It is so important that women not only have access to contraception, but that it is safe, reliable and affordable. In Australia, the most basic contraceptive pills, so not the ones that tackle other things like endometriosis or skin conditions, are subsidised by the Government Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme, which is basically a health insurance program that makes drugs cheaper for consumers. This is fantastic and highlights the importance of contraception success, that a highly conservative government continues to fund this, most likely because it is known that for every $1 spent on family planning, this includes sexual health, a government saves $4 in other areas like education, public health, water and sanitation, a substantial return on investment. Plus, I again emphasise giving women power and choice over when they have a child. On top of this, the income tax revenue a government can raise will also likely increase when contraception is readily available, as those with access often earn 40% more than those without, adding to the labour force, adding to our beloved productivity, increasing tax revenue, increasing spending and investment. It is a good economic success that can be felt across the whole country. For example, in 1970, medical degrees were held by men over 90% of the time, law degrees and MBAs over 95% of the time, and dentistry was 99% male-dominated. After this year came the pill. The rate of women earning these degrees rose, making up to one-third by 1980. The risk of starting school, falling pregnant and having to drop out went away, and with it, women had more control over their lives. Now, unfortunately, only 22% of contraception needs are being met worldwide. 73% of women who do not have access to contraception too are, of course, living in the world's 69 poorest countries. Places where water, public health, sanitation, infant mortality rates are already major challenges faced by people living there. That can't be solved by contraception, but it can certainly go a long way towards improving women's and children's health, gender equality, and health more broadly, based on the success this has had in developed countries. Because remember, this isn't just about pregnancy. Access to comprehensive sexual health services also protect women from hepatitis, HPV, and the strains that cause cervical cancer, and all other STIs and STDs, which play a large part in the savings made in public health, water and sanitation. Reproductive rights are about so much more than unwanted pregnancy. I mean, does anything more honestly need to be said? Other than that, a $1 spend now saves $4 elsewhere for those decision makers who depend purely on stats. So... What happens if you can't access contraception? What if you can, but it fails and you are left with an unwanted pregnancy? What if you want to fall pregnant, but learn that your unborn child isn't developing to be able to live a healthy life? What then? There is a vast number of reasons that a pregnant person might not want to or be able to actually have and support a child. 
each personal to the individual and each as valid as the next. It is incredibly troubling to see what is happening in some states in the US when it comes to restricting abortion access. For starters, banning it after six weeks is insane. Most people have no idea that they are pregnant until after this time, and to be able to confirm it and then go and get an abortion, be able to pay for it within such a short time frame, is incredibly difficult and straight up inequitable. It violates women's rights and gender equality. I didn't even gather any stats around abortion, because I think everything that leads up to it, sexual health, contraception access, paid parental leave, needs to make up more of the conversation. Abortion makes up a very small part of reproductive rights and gets so much attention because of religious ideology, conservative beliefs. Why is it that these people get to make decisions for those who know themselves better, their bodies better, their capacity to support a child better, their own personal safety? I'm sure everyone is probably familiar with the Freakonomics study that showed that opening access to safe legal abortion correlated with a reduction in crime, because it is likely that those who had an abortion probably did so because they knew they weren't going to be able to support a child. Knowing that children who grow up in unstable homes can be disadvantaged when it comes to education and then later employment opportunities, they can't participate in the legal economy, which can lead to a life in crime, which is very sad, unfortunate and unfair. So let people decide if they want to bring a child into their own world. Also, if people don't feel that they can safely raise a child, it is likely that they aren't able to access sufficient healthcare during and after pregnancy, which increases the risk of unsafe births, emergency C-sections, and even death to the child or mother. This is of particular significance in the US, where 25% of the population have inadequate or no health insurance. Now, the controversy around abortion, and particularly as it becomes more and more restricted, means that a lot of clinics offering these services and other services come under attack physically and online. At least 11 people have been killed in attacks on abortion clinics in the US since 1993. In the year 2000, a survey found that 7% of clinics in the US were the target of major violence, 9% of minor violence, 7% of major vandalism, 27% minor vandalism, and 44% harassment. Clinics today across all North America are reporting a rise in such attacks against them. In particular, given the world we live in today, cyber attacks have surged in recent years, having detrimental impacts on women's health clinics. For example, in 2017, Fatima Gifford, testified about abortion and choice in front of the Texas Health and Human Services Committee for Whole Women's Health, an organization with five reproductive healthcare clinics across Texas. After her testimony, she was denounced by a committee member who also read out the URL of the organization's website she was supporting. Their site suffered more than 500 hacking attempts after this and harassment escalated. Eventually, a security hole was found and hackers were able to shut down the website for an entire month, removing patient access to find clinics, schedule appointments, ask questions, and receive the care they needed. 
More broadly, the pro-choice movement was subject to over 42,500 incidents of hate speech in 2016 alone. In 2015, Planned Parenthood's website was hacked into and made to look like it sold fetal tissue, which it obviously doesn't. Photos of doctors have been posted online to discredit their name. Some clinics don't even offer their patients Wi-Fi to protect their identity. But anti-abortion groups will send vans to park outside clinics, provide Wi-Fi, and then direct patients to a fake website that shows disturbing and false information about the abortion process, which is just straight-up harassment. The thing with cyber attacks as well, they are illegal, but they're really hard to police. They also cost those who are attacked a lot of money, the estimated average being $1.67 million. And these clinics are often non-profits and don't really have the funds to prevent and recover from them because their resources are primarily directed to providing reproductive health care. Just imagine if $1.67 million was saved by one of these clinics, the benefits that they could give to society at large. So what exactly happens when reproductive rights are restricted? Well, we are seeing such impacts firsthand as a direct result of the global gag rule. The global gag rule is a policy that risks women's health and lives by forcing non-government organizations to choose between receiving US global health assistance and providing comprehensive sexual and reproductive health care. Basically, any president in the US is able to implement this and make foreign nations in desperate need of public aid stop providing certain reproductive and sexual health care if they want to receive US funds. In 2017, Trump expanded the global gag rule as part of his, and I'm using air quotes here, protecting life in global health assistance policy. I hate even saying these words because they clearly don't care about protecting life. They applied the rule to any recipient of US global health funding, totaling an unprecedented $8.8 billion. Now, in the past, it has generally been that if you receive US aid for healthcare, you can't use any of the money to provide things like contraception or abortion. But other funds from other countries are protected and can be used as wanted and needed. This expansion has stopped that altogether. So if you are receiving any US funds, you can't use any other funding, no matter where it has come from, to offer these services to those in need. And consider that this type of care and the organisations that provide it offer everything from HIV and AIDS programming and health systems that support and strengthen sanitation, water and hygiene are now all negatively impacted by this rule. Even things like humanitarian assistance funding that is generally exempt from this rule, well, organisations that receive this funding rely on service delivery by local NGOs that are impacted by the policy who provide sexual and reproductive health services to refugee populations because, you know, it is a human right. So the effects are so broad and so wide-reaching and go far outside the US. In Uganda, the reproductive health budget was cut by 30% as a direct result of this rule. This organisation, without the rule, would have been able to run the injectable contraceptive program 
to another 6,000 adolescents needing protection against unwanted pregnancy. But now they can't. In Ethiopia, the Family Guidance Association decided not to comply with the rule. As a result, the Center for Disease Control and, Prote and Prevention withdrew a five-year grant that would have averaged $5 million a year. Fortunately, they were able to receive short-term funding from the Netherlands. Otherwise, 10 confidential sex worker-friendly clinics, along with 21 additional clinics that provide HIV and AIDS services, would have been closed, leaving patients without support. Marie Stokes International in Senegal, an organisation that supports women's sexual health and reproductive rights, also refused to comply with the rule and as such lost 45% of their budget. This cut 11 mobile outreach units and they will now reach 20% fewer clients for family planning, provide at least 30% fewer cervical cancer screenings and give almost 30% fewer STI treatments. From a compliance perspective, the global gag rule also adds a huge bureaucratic burden to those who have no choice but to comply, including confusion and stigma, limited access to NGOs who offer services they need but are non-compliant, diversion of resources to overhead and other expenses, directly taking away from patients in need. And there is just no, no denying that access to safe, affordable healthcare of all kinds supports and benefits all society at large, especially in developing countries where services are lacking. It is just a fact that all governments should be interested in supporting this care, and I just cannot wrap my head around why they aren't. I don't know about you, but this stuff actually makes me cry, especially when I think about the global gag rule and how many young women and even girls are going to be negatively impacted by this. It is just devastating to think about someone being denied a fundamental human right just because of their gender and what some conservative white men have decided. It is more than unfair. So here are some things you can do to support reproductive rights. You can donate to a reputable organization in the US, places like Planned Parenthood, Center for Reproductive Rights, Neural Pro-Choice America. Internationally, you can donate to the Marie Stopes International, the United Nations Population Fund, the United Nations Children's Fund, Doctors Without Borders, so many more. And I will link these resources on cavegoblins.com for you to find. Talk to your local politicians and tell them how you feel about the issues in your local community and wider. Talk to people you know or work with and learn from them, whether they are on your side or not. Educating those who aren't. And importantly, don't give up. Keep fighting. This goes for all activism you might be engaged in. That brings me to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you're all fired up. You can follow me at Talia Murdoch and find the whole network at Cave Goblins across all social media platforms. Please feel free to reach out to me about this and any other episode or topic you are interested. I do love working with other people. Thank you so much for listening. Be kind to each other. I am Talia Murdoch and this has been Everything Economics. Hey, my name is Eric. 
I'm Piers. And this is Podcast vs. Podcast. You're listening to us here on the Cave Goblin Network. We take turns pitching podcasts to each other. We're trying to find a good podcast to do because we don't have any ideas. So turn off whatever show you're listening to. Turn on our show. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.